Our scripture reading today is from the first chapter of James and also the fifth chapter of James. So uh, the first section is James 1, 9 to 11, which says this, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now we're going to skip to James chapter 5 and read verses 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. You have, you have condemned You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we're just thankful for the privilege of coming to worship, Lord. We do it imperfectly, but Father, we know that you delight in hearing the praises of your people. Father, you delight when we delight in you. So Father, as we meditate on your word now, and as we consider our own lives, may you be delighted in the thoughts of our hearts the meditations of our minds, Lord. And would you draw us all powerfully closer to you. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, This past week, uh, Kyle Fisher and I had a chance to uh, go to what was called the Martin Luther Convocation over at Loyola University, which is our neighbor just, I guess, that way. And it's a convocation that they do every year in honor of Martin Luther King, And they often bring in a speaker who talks about uh, some issue of race or some issue of economics or something like that. And this year, the the speaker of this convocation was the president of the National Urban League. And he spoke for a while on the impact that Martin Luther King had on history and on our culture. But then he shifted gears into talking about where we are today and what he saw to be the biggest challenge to our culture now that we are moving forward in the world that we live in right now. And the biggest challenge that he put in front of all those that were there is the challenge that our culture faces of this idea of inequality of income. Now, it's interesting that he mentioned that because the New York Times had just brought, written an article in an op-ed piece about that very issue that same day. And what that op-ed piece said was that this issue of inequity of income seems to be the issue that the entire world is talking about right now. And the discussion goes something like this. In our world and in our culture, most of the wealth that is in our world is consolidated to roughly about 5% of the population, which leaves roughly 80% of the rest of the world's population to live in the margins and to scrape by through difficult means. It's the inequity of income. 
Part of the reason why so many people are probably talking about it is this past year was the 50th anniversary of something that Lyndon Johnston, Johnson did. Lyndon Johnson, 50, 50 years ago, uh, came before the American people and he declared war. He declared war on poverty. And he said this, he said, the richest nation on earth can afford to win the war against poverty, but we cannot afford to lose it. And as many people have reflected over the past week, 50 years later, we wonder whether the issues of wealth and poverty, the issues of the inequity of income, have gotten any better than they were 50 years ago, and some think it maybe has even gotten worse. And Baltimore, in some ways, is no better. Baltimore picked up on this theme and wrote an article in The Sun uh, this week and said that Baltimore, 50 years later from Johnson, Baltimore still struggles with this inequity of income. Baltimore struggles with poverty. It said 23.4% of Baltimore City residents live below the federal poverty line. And what that means is that two-thirds of children under 18 living in Baltimore live in houses whose income is below is 200% below the line of poverty in our culture. So what happens is the lines very often become clearly drawn between the haves on one side and the have-nots on the other side, and what it seems like is that gulf in between The gulf in between those that have means and those that don't seems to be getting bigger and bigger in our world. The past couple weeks we've been studying the book of James. And the book of James is a very interesting and a very provocative book if you've been with us. And this week's going to be no different. We've seen that James' main point in his book is to deal with the nature of what true faith is. What true faith is, what it looks like, and how it acts. True faith is not just saying that you are a person of faith, but it's about demonstrating that faith in very tangible ways in our real lives. Any one of us can go around and say we have faith. But is our faith evidenced by how we live our lives? Is it evidenced by the things that we do? If this thing called faith is supposed to change everything about us, then it ought to change our lives. And if it doesn't change our lives... James says you have to wonder whether you really and truly have true faith. Now, one of the things that we believe regularly here at City Church, one of the things we believe the Scriptures teach is that our actions, our deeds, are not the cause of our faith. We believe the cause of our faith has its source in God and in His grace. But what we do believe is that those deeds, those actions, are the effect of that powerful And true faith, so much so that if we don't have the evidence, we have to wonder whether we really and truly have that faith. And James' message has tremendous application for our world today, for our church, for our community as well. And it has a lot of impact because James' day in which he wrote this letter, in which he wrote this epistle, is really not all that different than things are today. James spoke very powerfully and very concretely about how true faith handles the reality of a world drawn along the lines of the haves and the have-nots. 
Last week we talked very uh, concretely about what it looks like to be a minister to the poor and oppressed in our culture. And one of the things that we discovered, if you read James' book, is that James says true faith will naturally evidence itself in a life that gives itself away on behalf of the poor and oppressed. But what we're going to look at this week is the flip side of that, in that James talks very powerfully and very provocative about how true faith handles wealth and how true faith handles riches and material possessions. And what I'd like to do is to look at four things or four dangers or four temptations that we all have to confront to some degree or lesser about the nature of riches and possessions and wealth in our culture. You know, the reality is, if you have riches, you have power in our world. And we've all heard the term that power corrupts, right? So what often happens with riches comes power, and with power comes the ability to either oppress people with our power or to build others up with our power and with our wealth. You see, when James wrote this book, he was writing predominantly to Jewish uh, Christians in the first century. Many believe James to be one of the first ever New Testament books that were written. And James is writing to believers in Jesus Christ in this first century. He's writing to them about what the nature of true faith is all about and what it looks like. But he's also writing to encourage them in the midst of some very severe persecution and oppression that they were feeling. And as you read throughout the book, you see the disparity that we just spoke about between the haves and the have-nots, which was very true in James' context. It was so true that there was a system of injustice that was in place and was very hard to break out of in James' context. Wealth and power were concentrated into a certain group, and that group knew how to work the system. They were, there were several wealthy landowners that ruled the day, and they pursued wealth insatiably. And in the process, they would abuse their workers. What would happen is that these wealthy landowners would hire workers. And the workers would go out into the field and work uh, a certain amount of hours each day for a wealthy landowner with the expectation that when they finished their workday, they would go to these wealthy landowners and they would receive the wages that they deserved for the work that they had put into for that day. But very often when they went back to the landowner after working all day, the landowner would often refuse to pay them. Now when that happened, a worker had a right. And their right was they could go to the court and sue this landowner for lack of payment. But here's where it got tricky. Because the landowners were so wealthy and because they were so powerful, they could buy out the court system. So almost, almost never did the court rule in favor of the worker, and they always ruled in favor of the wealthy and powerful landowner. That's what James is confronting in his book. The wealthy had used their power to influence the structures of the day, and they used that power to oppress the workers and to increase their riches, and there was nothing that the poor worker could do to fix it. They were helpless in this context. 
And this is why James writes in such incredibly graphic language about the wealthy, especially in chapter 5. Essentially what he's saying is, the world may not hear the cries of the oppressed that are crying out, feeling helpless, but God does. He says in verse 4 of chapter 5, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And what James says is, God hears your frustration. He hears your cry. He hears your anger about this system. And one day he will come and make it all right and bring judgment on those that are oppressing you. And what you see in James is a, is a theme that is consistent all throughout the scriptures in which God continues to show that he is a God who cares deeply about the poor and the helpless. He is a defender of the weak, and he's a defender of the powerless. But that's not the only thing James says that's really provocative uh, about riches and wealth. He says some really provocative things in chapter 1 as well. You know, when you think about it, many of us, very simply, when you think about us, many of us think we'll just be a little more happier in life if we had just a few more things, right? It's one of the most basic things. If I just had X, Y, and Z, or if I just had a little more money to help me pay my bills, or if I just had that next position at work, everything would just be a little, little better and I would be a little bit happier as a person. All of us think this way. But what James does is he says almost the complete opposite. He turns that all up on side of its head and he says in chapter 1, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. James is challenging the very presupposition that most of us base our entire lives on, that if we just had a little more, we would be a little bit happier. Now, anytime we talk about kind of riches and wealth, there's a very strong danger that all of us have, right? And there's a certain temptation, and that is to think that there is some, there's some riches line, this riches danger line, that we all just kind of fall under, so that all that stuff in the Bible that talks about riches and wealth doesn't really apply to us, right? We read all this stuff about riches and wealth in the scriptures, and we think, oh, that doesn't apply to us. That applies to somebody who's just a little bit more affluent than I do, than I am, or somebody that has just a little bit more. That doesn't apply to me. We fall below this kind of riches danger line. But when you think about our culture, and when you think about the context in which we live in, we all need to pay very careful attention to what James says about the nature of riches and wealth. Because the reality is, you and I live in one of the most affluent countries ever in human history, in one of the most affluent periods in all of human history. We live in a country where we have things at our fingertips that people throughout human history could never have imagined. And we still live in a world where more than 50% of the people in our entire world live on less than $2 a day. Yet somehow, when we read these passages about riches and wealth, we don't think they apply to us whatsoever, but they absolutely do. Anybody living in our world and living in our culture has to come to terms with what James is saying here 
about the nature of riches and wealth. Now, the temptation is to think that being rich and to have means and having wealth is bad. But I don't believe the scriptures teach that. I don't believe that James teaches that. There's nothing inherently sinful about having riches and about having possessions, about having the things that we do. But there are certain dangers that can come from them. They have a great and significant power to distract us from three very important things. And that's what James helps us to see. The first thing they have the ability to do is to really distract us from the true nature of our human condition. It says this in, uh, in, in chapter 1. Like a flower of the grass, he, meaning the rich man, will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. One of the things that James wants us to see is that often what comes hand in hand with material possessions and wealth and riches is this feeling like we as people are invincible. When you think about it, if you have wealth, if you have means, if you have riches, you have certain things at your disposal. You can afford to go to doctors. You can afford to to jump on this health craze and and buy all the healthiest food that's out there. You have the ability to to go to a gym and put yourself in good shape and to do all this sort of stuff. You have all these abilities that enhance the nature of your life to make it better. And sometimes in the midst of that, we feel like our lives are invincible. Yet James wants us to see that our human condition is is far from invincible. James says our life, he says this in chapter 4, our life is like a vapor, or it's like a grass or a flower that fades in the scorching heat. The book of Isaiah, the book of Psalms talk about this very thing too. Job says our lives are like a garment that is moth-eaten. Psalm 90 describes our lives like dust. The truth is that Scripture tells us is that our lives are far more frail than we like to think they are. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. We never know when our lives will be demanded upon us. And because of that, we are very frail. And our lives are short. They can be taken from us at any moment. So what James wants to see is what we live for really matters. Because our lives are so frail. Uh, ESPN, which I watch too much more than I should, uh, did a documentary recently called Broke. And uh, in this documentary, what it did is it profiled several athletes who at one point made an unimaginable amount of money, an obscene amount of money, yet are now broke. The money is all gone. And one of the things that the documentary said, it mentioned, was that 60% of NBA players are broke within five years of retirement. And the NFL is no better. 78% of former NFL players have filed bankruptcy at some point. You know, we look at that and we think, how, how, how could anybody spend that much money? How could it slip through their fingers so quickly within two or three years of having all this money. But what it reminds us is something that James wants us to see too. Not only are our lives frail, but our wealth is very transient. Sometimes it can go just as fast as it comes. 
What James wants us to see is because of that, because our lives are a vapor, because wealth is so transient, it is not a good thing to base our lives upon. It is a shaky foundation that often distracts us from the reality of what our human condition really is. One speaker said that the loneliest people in the world are those who have exhausted the wealth and pleasures of this world and have come away with nothing. James wants us to see that this is the true reality of our human condition and that sometimes we can become distracted from that true reality. But we, what, he also, what he also wants us to see is that riches have the great ability to distract us from the true nature of our spiritual condition. What James wants us to see is that no matter what our stock portfolio may say, we all stand before God as people who are spiritually bankrupt in desperate need of his grace. You know, there's all sorts of things that we try to construct our lives around. There's all sorts of external things that we like to draw our value and meaning from as human beings. We can root our value as a person in our wealth and in our riches. We can root it in our success. We can root it in our influence or our reputation with people around us. We can root it in our own perceived sense of power. And what we often do is we take these external things and we build our lives around them. We build our identity upon them. We find our value in them. We place our security in them. But the scriptures paint a very different picture about our lives. Because what the scriptures tell us is that before God, whose opinion matters most, we stand bankrupt and in need. In God's economy, we're not defined by all those external things. We're defined by the state of our hearts before God. And before him, we stand broke with nothing to offer him, nothing to make him shed his grace upon our lives, nothing to make him love us. All we have is our sin and rebellion. And that is what has made us spiritually bankrupt before God. But the true danger comes when we believe that our value is placed in all those external things. When we believe our press about all those external things, and in doing so, it distracts us from our true spiritual condition before God, and that is bankrupt. One of the greatest privileges I've had in my life is, is serving at several different homeless shelters or missions throughout Baltimore City. And every time I go to a homeless shelter or a mission, I, uh, I am always surprised because I have a certain perception of people that should be at that mission. And then when I get there and start talking to the men or women in there, my perceptions are always destroyed because inevitably I end up talking to a big banker or someone who once was uh, a lawyer or someone who once had his, all these riches and all this wealth and somehow has ruined it all through their sin and rebellion. But often what they'll do is they'll tell you that they're so thankful that happened because they had become so distracted by all those external things that they had built their life around, 
that God had to tear it all down in order for them to see their own true spiritual condition. You see, it's not that riches and wealth are bad. They just have the ability to distract us from the true nature of our heart. The last thing I want us to see is that riches have the ability, at times, to distract us from that which is of utmost value. You know, the Christian story or the gospel story is not just a story, it's a true story. It's not just a myth, it's a reality. But it's unlike any other religious perspectives that anybody's going to tell you throughout their lives. Because what the Christian story tells us, what the gospel story tells us, is that Jesus Christ, who himself was full of the riches and bliss and the wonders of heaven, set it all aside to become like you and I. The gospel story teaches us that he was born into scandal, that he was born into poverty, and he walked a path of rejection. The scriptures tell us that Christ himself suffered the shame of the crucifixion. On the third day, he was resurrected from the dead, and he did all these things so that you and I could be made right before God the Father. He did it so that our own spiritual bankruptcy could be dealt with. He did it so that our spiritual account with had no funds in it, even negative funds, it had nothing in it, so that our spiritual account could be credited with all the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And he did it so that you and I could experience the wonders and the bliss and the riches of heaven and a relationship with God the Father. And what the gospel tells us is that by faith we grasp this free gift of grace and we discover the very thing that is of utmost value, and that is a right relationship with God the Father. Luke 18 tells a very powerful story about a young man. The scriptures tell us he was rich, he had risen to a great status, and he had lots of material means and lots of material possessions, but he felt empty with his life, so he wanted to discover what true life was all about. So he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, tell me what true life is all about. And he has this life-giving conversation with Jesus, the true source of life. But what the scriptures tell us is that tragically he walked away from Jesus. He rejected Jesus that day. Why? Because his possessions and his wealth had distracted his heart to such a degree that he saw more value in them than in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He had become so distracted by his possession and his status and his wealth that he walked away from that which was of utmost value, a relationship with Jesus Christ that gives life. So what James wants us to ask is, what about you and I? Have you and I allowed the pursuit of wealth to distract us from what is the true human condition? Have you and I let our wealth and our power distract us from our true spiritual condition, our true spiritual neediness? Have you and I allowed our pursuit of success and influence to distract us from that which is of utmost value? C.S. Lewis said this, 
Every man, therefore, who lives in luxury and deception is tempted in this way. Because even though we have life, they have handed themselves over to death. The question we have to ask ourselves is, if this is us, then we need to come to Jesus anew and afresh and find the very thing that our hearts are so yearning for, our hearts are so desirous for. We need to walk away from trying to build our lives around all these foundations that at best prove to be shaky, and we need to embrace that which is of utmost value, a relationship with Jesus Christ. I'd like to close with these words from Jeremiah 9. It says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord.